I know. A gross generalization that COVID is not good. <laughs> what about from the COVID's perspective? The coronavirus is, is evolutionarily very successful right now. It is. It's a rapid mutator and a rapid spreader, except when it's not. It is a virus that makes zero sense, to be quite honest. The actual joke here wasn't about COVID. It was about inflammation mm. as a secret killer. So let's back up. Who the hell are we talking to today? <laughs> we are talking to Dr. Thomas McDade over oh, at Northwestern. That's right. Tom is our friend at Northwestern who did his training at Emory and a postdoc at Carolina Population Center. And he's been up at Northwestern basically reinventing how to do lab work by innovating this whole dry blood spot method that so many of our colleagues mm -hmm. now use. And he's employed that in a wide variety of settings. He sent us four recent papers that came out. We asked for one, but we got four and they're amazing. So I tried to dig into all of them uh, for the interview today and we'll have to be careful that we don't go crazy, but he's got two on the role of inflammation. It's a basic fundamental aspect of our immune system. But as one of his articles points out, Time Magazine recently had it on its cover as a secret killer. Mm. So how does it get to be both? And then he has also innovated an at-home COVID antibody test with the blood spot method to determine if the antibody levels are durable after getting vaccinated, right? So yeah. if people's antibody levels are staying up. So some kind of topical anthropology, right? Now look at us very, being topical these very days. Very topical. And I mean, I feel like it was late last week or maybe even yesterday that I read an article with the first reoccurrence of Omicron infection in somebody where somebody caught Omicron twice. Yeah, I know, right? Joy. Oh, joy. So this is a fun question to ask Tom of, you know, we are all under this belief that once we have antibodies from either infection, previous infection or the vaccine, we should be good to go. But we all know vaccines do not prevent infection, but they do seem to make it more mild. But there's this idea that if you've already been infected, you should be great and have really strong resistance to the virus, but maybe not so much. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things that I'm seeing across all his papers, right, is this idea of having cutoff values. We tend to be critical of cutoff values that suggest above and below certain things are going to happen to you because there's so much variation in human populations mm -hmm. that they become problematical. But we do really have to start somewhere. And, and in both the articles, he's really talking about where those cutoffs are and how you negotiate them when sometimes cutoff value suggests you might be unhealthy, but maybe you're not. Maybe there's some real world, as he it, says, some ecologic, ecologic is the term that they've introduced. And this relates to things that I've been talking about in my classes, not COVID or inflammation related, but like BMI, body mass index cutoffs, where we have all these things that are supposed to happen at one range of BMI versus another range of BMI. But when you actually look at the individual level, those relationships often fall apart completely. So what are the practical uses of cutoffs? Mm -hmm. When should they be applied on an individual level and when should they not be applied on an individual level? So that's a great discussion to have. When we say antibody levels, I mean, none of us really has any sense of what the numbers are in our bodies to begin with, right? So, so imagine like you have all this COVID and there's like 10 individual organisms, microscopic, that are like, let's put our big boy pants on and go fight this COVID thing. And they're, they're all saying like, we could use some more antibodies to help us. All right, here he comes. Let's see. Let's use that voice and talk to him as though we're bacteria. Sorry, bacteria. Hey, Hi, Tom, Tom, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? 
we're just pretending to be antibodies in the body and counting our numbers to see if we had enough to fight the invading viruses, and we put on little voices. So this is the voice of the 10 antibodies. <laughs> anyway, Tom, welcome to the Sausage of Science. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with us. You have a really wonderfully productive career and one that you have shifted to really focus on, on the current pandemic, trying to make your lab really practical with the here and now of COVID-19. And so it's really great to have you on. But before we dig into the interesting ideas about inflammation and COVID-19 antibody tests, we want to hear your kind of origin story. How did you get into anthropology and, and decide to pursue it as a career? First, let me just say thanks for inviting me and for doing this. I mean, the podcast is so great. And, you know, I think it's really important for us to get outside of our academic discipline, subdisciplinary silos and communicate more broadly with other scholars and the public more generally. That's not something that I've done really well or invested a lot of time in my career, but I'd like to do more of it. So I think you guys are just terrific for doing that. And I look forward to learning from you in that space as well. In terms of why I do what I do, you know, I went to college and I was a pre-med bio major only because I knew I was good at science and I was interested in health and naively and ignorantly assumed a career in medicine was the only way to engage those interests. And just by chance, I ended up in a class with Jim McKenna, who was a Pomona College at the time, finished his career at Notre Dame. You know, this was in the late 80s. And so Jim was launching his career on pivoting away from research on alloparenting and parents and branching out to humans. And it was brought on by the birth of his son. And he realized that the close connections between caregiver and infant he was studying in non-human primates applied to human infants. And he launched his career in the area of sudden infant death syndrome and infant sleep and bed sharing and co-sleeping. So I was a college student when that was happening and I just happened to take a first year seminar with him and he didn't proselytize. He just opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about human biology and growth and development and health. And it blew my mind. It was so it was grounded in evolutionary theory and history. It was a comparative perspective. It was an ecological and ethological one and also very much a cross-cultural perspective. And so that class introduced me to kind of work that we do in the broadest possible sense. So I took more classes with him and some other folks at Pomona College, but I still couldn't quite shake the pre-med bug. You know, I was hanging out with a bunch of pre-meds and taking all those classes and I graduated and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I moved to San Francisco with some friends and I just had a 40 hour a day job for a couple of years to try to figure out what I wanted to do. All my pre-med friends went to medical school and they were miserable. They were just, you know, learning facts, regurgitating things. And I thought, that's not what I want to do. I want to, you know, I want to do some research. I was interested in discovery and, and, you know, knowledge production. Of course, all those friends are, you know, they're accomplished physicians now and they're doing great and they're very happy. But those first two years of medical school and I seeing it through their eyes made it easy for me to decide to go to graduate school which I did and I went to Emory University, had the great privilege of working with Carol Worthman and in her lab, which forward a lot of the methods and, and approaches that I learned there to my lab here. And then you know, I just also had the great fortune of landing the job at Northwestern where I've been my entire professional career and had the chance to work with Bill Leonard and Chris Kazawa, now Katie Amato and Sarah Young, as well as my colleagues in the department more broadly. So I've been very fortunate, but the origin was back in medical school and those interests and having the opportunity to think about them, those kinds of issues more broadly. And I wouldn't do it any differently. Tell us a little bit about your lab and the setup and sort of the resources. I think it's useful for people to hear about what is some pretty intense biological bench work that you're doing 
but you've made do with some resource limitations, let's just say. Yeah, well, you had the opportunity to see what we affectionately call the trailer or sometimes the FEMA trailer. Our department is in this beautiful 100-year-old Victorian house, which has been, you know, rehabbed for offices. It's very cozy and very good for sort of, you know, collegiality and connections with colleagues and stuff. And then 30 years ago, at the back of the building was built a temporary structure, which I told was built for 10 or 15-year lifespan, but, you know, we've been in it ever since. And it's nothing to look at, but that's where the lab is, and there are a couple of other labs there. You know, what it lacks in infrastructure, it makes up for in sort of capacity in the sense that it's not space that anyone else really wants. So we actually kind of have a lot of it and we're sort of off the radar. We're not part of a big, you know, biological sciences lab complex. And that has its ups and downs. You know, sometimes it'd be nice to be with those colleagues. But on the other hand, what we do is we use a lot of sort of interesting and somewhat sophisticated methods for biological collection and analysis but in the service of more social science oriented questions. So I've had the opportunity to move the lab, especially when I've complained about, you know, the leaks we have in the summer with the thunderstorms and the, right now it's probably 60 degrees in the lab. And so I'll complain every once in a while and people will say, well, you're doing wet lab stuff. Why don't you move to a central building in the middle of campus with other wet labs? And I've, I've thought about that, but then I think, you know, actually, this is better serves my purpose and my students to be embedded with people who are asking questions and different kinds of questions that are being asked across campus. So that's why we're committed to being in this space. Having said that, we do now have a little bit of a satellite lab in a different building, which is more focused on biological labs. And that's been nice because we're moving in a new direction with some new techniques that need a little bit more lab infrastructure. But I do feel like to do the kind of stuff we do, you don't necessarily have to have a huge capital investment in fancy buildings and equipment. And that to me is kind of the anthropological sensibility, right? We try to bring our methods and our perspectives to the people and the places that we're interested in learning from rather than just bringing people into our spaces. So the way the lab is oriented and even the space kind of reflects that. I think that's a really wonderful lesson for people to hear. And I know Bill Leonard is an absolute master of making the most out of little resources, little space, and little money, and able to find such amazing deals for equipment. <laughs> and Steph Levy has told me all of his amazing ways of, you know, getting the work done, despite maybe not what people envision being the proper, quote unquote, lab space and, and equipment level. So that's really great to hear. So kind of pre-COVID, although we could probably even loop COVID into this, you've had a lot of focus on inflammation. Inflammation hit the cover of Time Magazine as the silent killer, but inflammation also plays a really important role for our health and well-being. And so there seems to be this push and pull going on between inflammation being beneficial and then inflammation being very harmful. Maybe you could kind of tease that apart for our audience and tell them what inflammation is and what can cause it and what kind of leads it to being the beneficial versus the harmful. Yeah. So inflammation is a critical part of our bodies defenses against infection, injury, burns, anything you know that threatens the integrity of our body in some capacity, almost all those things initiate an inflammatory response. And they're very quick and they're very effective at limiting damage and preventing the spread of most pathogens. And then other second tier immune defenses can come online to help with healing and repair and more specific you know, immune defenses. But it's a critical part of our immune system. And if you don't have a functioning inflammatory response, you don't make it out of infancy. So it is an adaptive and critical part of our immune defenses. 
But having said that, if it gets overblown or dysregulated and can't turn itself off effectively, it can cause a lot of collateral damage. And in the context of where we are now, epidemiologically in the U.S., nutritionally, there are a lot of chronic degenerative diseases that inflammation plays a part in contributing to the pathophysiology. So it has gotten a bad name. Time Magazine branded it the secret killer a number of years back. If you read the biomedical journals and the literatures, it's almost like they're talking about inflammation as if it's a disease, as, mm. as if it's a pathology. And then here for me as an anthropologist and a biological anthropologist interested in evolutionary medicine and history, you know, I try to sort of flip that script a little bit and remind people that inflammation is indeed really important. And when it becomes dysregulated, that doesn't mean the whole system is bad. We should ask the question, why in some people in some places and sometimes has inflammation become chronic and dysregulated? And so a lot of my work has been focusing on answering that question. And a comparative perspective is really useful there. So some of the studies we've done in the Philippines, some in South America with some horticulturalist populations has showed that the level of chronic inflammation doesn't have to be as high as it is in the U.S. and other sort of post-epidemiologic transition affluent societies. It's actually much lower. And in those kinds of places, inflammation can be very high, but when it goes up, it also comes down very quickly. So the analogy that I'll often use is if you have a small fire in your house, you want the fire department to be there as quickly as possible and to put that fire out quickly with as little water as possible. That's great, right? So there was a problem. The fire department inflammation in this case came, dealt with it, all done. What you don't want is the fire department to linger, spray water everywhere, break all your windows, and do more damage than the original fire would have done in the first place, right? So why is it that a fire department might respond one way versus another? It turns out attention to developments, environments early in life, and a comparative perspective, at least in our work, is generating some insights into the factors that lead to inflammation becoming chronic and dysregulated. And that's a, another question that might be really clarifying for our audience is that chronic psychosocial stress can also lead to increased inflammation. Is there a difference in the pathways of something, say, you cut your hand versus a stressful event? Are there different pathways leading to that inflammation between physical injury and then psychosocial? Yes, there absolutely are. So there are a lot of different processes and pathways that activate inflammation and also different pathways that turn it down. In the context of stress, it seems that one of the reasons why stress can lead, particularly chronic stressors that are ongoing, can lead to elevated levels of inflammation, which is odd. When you just look, think about that problem at the face value, a lot of us have learned that stress in general tends to be immunosuppressive, it increases risk for infectious diseases, progression of cancers, those kinds of things. So why is it that stress might actually lead to more inflammation? Well, as it turns out, what stress does is it turns down one of the important anti-inflammatory signaling pathways in our body. So our cells hear a signal that says, okay, you've got enough inflammation, turn it down, you don't need it anymore. Our cells become deaf to that signal under conditions of chronic stress. It's called glucocorticoid resistance. So the chronic activation of glucocorticoid or stress pathways makes our bodies less willing to hear that turn it off now signal. It's, it's similar to insulin resistance contributing to diabetes. So in the case of stress, that is an important pathway. I love that you used stress, which has exactly the same issue where we say stress, everyone thinks it's negative, but it really is a neutral term that has all sorts of gradations that click into this sort of system of right. when were you exposed to it, under what circumstances, how do you appraise it, right? All these mechanisms make it super, super complicated, which of course 
is what we're all here studying. For listeners, I want to mention the article titles, right? So you have one called Early Environments in the Ecology of Inflammation, which is where the reference to the Time Magazine piece comes from. And that's a review in, I think, both inflammation articles were in Proceedings in National Academy of Science. Is that correct? And the other one called Social and Physical Environments Early in Development Predict DNA Methylation of Inflammatory Genes in Young Adulthood. So in this article, you're digging into some of those potential stressors, right? Your team found 10 patterns of DNA methylation across nine different genes that corresponded to some very specific childhood exposures. For instance, birth in the dry season or exposure to animal feces. So I was wondering, now that we've indicated some of what we can find, how did you go about finding these associations? And then what do those imply for us? So this is part of the story about trying to figure out how inflammation becomes chronic and dysregulated. And we did analyses more than a decade ago now, I think about that time, where we looked at environments in infancy in the Philippines and how they shaped levels of C-reactive protein, a measure of chronic inflammation later in life. And we found that there are lots of associations with early nutrition and early infectious disease and microbial exposures. And in fact, those things were beneficial. So if you were born into an environment with higher levels of microbes, some of which can cause infections, other just benign, but it's a more rich microbial environment, you actually had lower levels of chronic inflammation later in life. And that makes sense in terms of early in infancy being a critical period when your immune system, much like the brain, is learning about its environment. And that is sort of setting it up and has implications for function later in life. And so we documented that. A couple other groups in other places have shown similar things. It's also related to the hygiene hypothesis or old friends hypothesis, the idea that infectious microbes early in life help our immune system get itself trained up on how to regulate itself. So then the big question is, okay, you've shown that there's an association between aspects of exposures in infancy, early life environments, and inflammation or immune function later in life. What connects those two? You know, it, there are probably some behavioral pathways. We're particularly interested in the biological pathways. What is a mechanism through which your body can, quote unquote, remember the experiences and exposures early in life and shape physiology later in life? So over the past 10 years in particular, there's been a tremendous explosion of interest in epigenetics as a potential mechanism through which our bodies remember experiences early in life. So epigenetics simply refers to sort of durable changes to aspects of DNA that are not heritable across generations. But it, it literally changes the structure and function of a gene, but not in a way that's heritable, heritable across generations. It's not the gene sequence, it's just a change in form that modifies its function. And it turns out that you can interrogate this pretty easily in blood samples and immune cells. We don't do this in my lab. That's you know the, that molecular work is beyond my pay grade and expertise. So we collaborate with some great people on, on that work. But we hypothesize that that modifications to genes involved in the regulation of inflammation, which are pretty well known, could be a mechanism linking early environments and inflammation later in life. And that's what that paper was all about. We were posed that question. We measured DNA methylation across more than 100 genes known to be involved with the regulation of inflammation. And we found that aspects of the postnatal infectious disease environment, breastfeeding, and a little bit about nutrition, birth weight, did leave some marks on the genome, which then were related to inflammatory cytokine production later in life. It was one of these papers where I had an idea, I wrote the grant, got the money, did the analyses, wrote the paper, and it came out like kind of like I thought it was going to come out. And that's probably the only time that's ever happened. The yeah. dream. <laughs> yeah. That is the dream. Yeah. It's, it was great, but you know what? I actually think science 
and my science, in my opinion, is more interesting when it's unexpected, when I don't mm -hmm. find exactly yeah. what I thought I was going to find. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it worked out the way it's, it was supposed to, in a sense. When I start hearing that kind of story, I start to go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Everything's going too smoothly. Like, where do we push back? Have you found the hygiene hypothesis to be wrong yet? Have you? Well, you know, it sort of depends on what you mean. I mean, it's a broad hypothesis has been applied to a lot of aspects of the infectious disease environment and a lot of outcomes later in life. And, you know, the general pattern is consistent that there are some effects, but, you know, immunologists in particular will quibble about, well, matters to T cells and not B cells or matters to innate immunity or not or whatever. I'm not in the weeds with that. What I like about it is the broader taking a step back and again, thinking about human evolutionary history and sort of cultural and ecological diversity forever humans have been in environments where early in our lives and throughout our lives, but especially early in our lives where it probably matters most, we've been exposed to a very rich microbial milieu that is qualitatively different than how I was raised, how my kids are being raised here in the very sanitized and hygienic environments that we now live in. And you could say, okay, that's great. It doesn't matter. I don't care. And certainly there are lots of benefits in terms of reductions of infectious diseases that can cause a lot of suffering and death. But is there a cost? And if you, again, take a step back and think about what the immune system is, you know, it's not just like a, an army that is standing guard. It's a sensory system. I mean, I, I think of it more like a brain that it is learning about the environment in which it is developing and which it is tasked with sort of protecting you against, you know, all sorts of pathogens and microbes and things like that. And it has to learn about that ecology and it learns very quickly, especially early in life. And if it doesn't get the input it needs, I mean, it literally, it literally needs input from the microbial world to drive its development and function, right? Just like the brain needs sensory input to help you develop the senses, language, things like that. The immune system's the same way, just tend not to think about it that way, and especially in the first couple of years of life. If you don't get that input, the system is on overdrive. It wants input to help figure itself out. And if it doesn't get that, why wouldn't it run a bit amok? And in some ways you can think, why isn't everyone suffering from crazy autoimmune diseases? Sometimes I think that that should be more the default. Uh, situation, but it's not. Just as you say, you like taking the broad view, I'm going to make you narrow down. And this is also going to work, I think, as a really good transition. So this key idea that exposure during key developmental periods, first couple of years of life, really set one up immunologically for adulthood. And then possibly if things are very bad, there could be negative downstream effects as well. We are now in an age of COVID where we've gone through two, three years of parents keeping young kids at home and or not going to school and online learning, all of these things. And I know there's been this concern about naive immune systems because these kids have not been exposed to the typical microbes that they would be in daycare because they haven't been in daycare. Uh, and we've seen big increases in RSV uh, as well as other, although of course at university, we saw hand, foot and mouth disease outbreak last semester really hmm. gross. Really gross. Um, anyway, but when it comes to the really young kids, do you have any thoughts that we might see a spike in autoimmune disorders because of these potentially more naive immune systems for kids who have not been exposed to things the past couple of years? Yeah. So, you know, I have a colleague, Katie Amato, who studies the human microbiome. She has a nice paper, which is speculating that one of the adverse effects among many of the pandemic, but one of the sort of unanticipated or, you know, potentially forgotten implications is that babies born in 2020 through now have 
been very isolated, right? Physically and socially from others and from the physical world, at least in the United States, in a way that's different than prior. So we're already in a microbially impoverished landscape because of regimes of hygiene sanitation. They're probably even one step further down that path because of social isolation and lockdowns. And so the implication is that their microbiota could be different, their immune systems might not be getting sort of geared up in the same way, and that they might be at higher risk for dysregulation later in life. I would hypothesize that that is the case. But, you know, one of the tricky things here, and I thought you were going to maybe even go in the COVID direction in the sense that a lot of people are saying SARS is not bad for kids and, and why not just let them get it? And, and oh, by the way, McDade, you're saying that infectious disease exposures early in life are good for the development of the immune system and for inflammation. So why not just have at it? And that this for me has been a challenge. And actually my first, you know, we started talking about sort of social media and broadcasting out into the public more generally what we do, trying to educate people. This was my first lesson, important lesson learned when I started talking about our work in inflammation and how microbial exposures might reduce chronic inflammation later in life. It got picked up in the media with a press release. I did some interviews. And then there's sort of our second life of that whole idea and literature and paper online, which cited the paper as evidence that you don't need to vaccinate your kids. And we shouldn't worry about, I mean, this is pre-COVID, but we shouldn't worry about the flu. And, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hey, look at this paper. So, you know, in my mind, I can make the clear distinction that, yes, there are infectious diseases that will kill you. And there's a vaccine for that. You should take it. But then there are also lots of benign and, and probably good for you microbes in the environment, in dirt and raw vegetables, things that people have been eating and still eating and are exposed to around the world that we're depriving ourselves of. And that's probably not a good thing. But some people lump those things together. Microbe, infection, bad, or don't worry about it. You know, so it's it can be tough to calibrate these kinds of messages. Looking at the two papers that you sent us on looking at antibody levels of people with previous COVID exposure, determining if they have vaccinations, right? If we take a sort of commonly held saying, like you just said, you know, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? We're left with this idea that, okay, yeah, I don't really want my kids to die. So I'm just going to go ahead and vaccinate them. But on the other hand, if they did get COVID and they didn't die, maybe they are immune to COVID for how long, right? And we get into this question where we started, which was our little voices, like how many antibodies, how strong is stronger? And is it strong enough? And that seems to be the question you're addressing. And in fact, your paper is called Durability of Antibody Response to Vaccination and Surrogate Neutralization of Emerging Variants Based on SARS-CoV-2 Exposure History. So I was wondering if you could tell us then about this study and what you found. So let me just back up and say, we're still doing our COVID work, but that was sort of the end capstone of that project, which started initially in April of 2020, when, you know, we're all locked down, like literally don't leave the house, freaking out. And at least in my house, we went through all the stages, right? There was denial and there was anger and then some acceptance. And, and uh, so in April of 2020, I sort of wrapped my head around, this is not going away. And, you know, data were starting to come out about transmission in the community, rates of exposure to the virus, and people were asking, like, how many people are exposed? There was so much limited testing at the time. And I realized that the work I've done as an anthropologist, getting out there, collecting blood samples from people in their homes, overseas, bringing them back to the lab, like, I could do that. 
So I got permission, I got in my lab, I developed an antibody test that just used a drop of blood and the finger stick dry blood spot samples. You know, I get up, I ride my bike to the lab and I was the only one on campus and, and I did that for a couple weeks. And we developed this method, I partnered with folks at the medical school and we designed a survey where we sent collection kits and surveys out to nearly 10,000 people in the city of Chicago and surrounding areas. And they nicked their fingers, put a drop of blood on the paper and they sent it back to us. Then we tested them for antibodies. So it allowed us to detect whether they'd been exposed to SARS previously or not. If they had been exposed, how big their sort of antibody response was. And to me, this is where the anthropological sensibility again came in. All this scientific data and reports in you know, various newspapers and other outlets were coming out about COVID and, and the risk factors for severe COVID and inequities and in the distribution of exposure to the virus and hospitalizations, all that stuff was starting to come online. But our understanding of the epidemic, who is at risk, who is at risk for, for bad outcomes, where the virus is going, was based almost exclusively on the study of the sickest people who were getting into hospitals, many of whom were dying, unfortunately, and then others who were going into the clinic to have their symptoms managed. But that's like 5-10% of the total cases, right? 40% of cases of SARS infection are asymptomatic. Two-thirds, fully two-thirds, are mild or you know moderate. So the whole view of you know, what the pandemic epidemic was like in terms of the immunobiology of it was biased towards the study of healthcare workers and people who were having pretty serious infections. Whereas the rest of us were either you know huddling at home, not getting it, desperate for a vaccine, or if we did get it, tended to have pretty mild and moderate cases. So that was sort of a function of lack of creative thinking and also a lack of methods that allow us to study this problem in people in their homes. So we sort of solved the problem in terms of the studying of getting access to people safely in the blood and, and so we can analyze it in the lab. And then we just started to profile high levels of asymptomatic infection. We got some insight into inequities and exposure in severe cases in the Chicago area. And then at the end, getting back to your question, through meandering through a year and a half of work, the vaccine started to come out. And so we had samples before people got vaccinated, and then we got samples after they got vaccinated, a couple, two to four weeks after they got vaccinated. And of course, Merck, Pfizer, it's part of the filings with FDA and other scientific reports, had documented that the vaccine generates a really high antibody response. Great. Okay, so we found that. People who got vaccinated after the first dose, they had a big antibody response. If you had previously a confirmed case of COVID, you had a really high antibody response. So that's also not expected. Our immune systems generate memory and with subsequent exposure, we get a better response. And people like me who are seronegatives, no evidence of prior infection or exposure, had a good response to the first dose of vaccine, but not a very big one. Interestingly, there's this intermediate group of people who, in our study, tested positive for prior exposure, but didn't have much in the way of symptoms. So they had a mild case of COVID, or they were asymptomatic and actually never knew that they were exposed. You give those people a shot of the vaccine, and their response is indistinguishable from someone who has no history of prior exposure. So again, a lot of the messaging coming out through the media and through FDA and through other public health channels, if you've been previously exposed with COVID, you have some natural immunity and you're gonna be fine. Maybe you only need one vaccine dose. Our study says, yeah, that's fine if you had a really bad case, but if you had a mild or moderate case, your immunity doesn't look that different from someone who actually wasn't ever exposed before. And so we've documented that a couple of different ways in terms of neutralization activity of the antibodies, overall level of antibodies, and we've also tracked that over time. That someone who has a very mild or asymptomatic case 
doesn't look that different from someone who hasn't previously been exposed. It's only those severe and moderate cases that show different profile and higher levels of immunity. So when you say, I had COVID, therefore I don't need my booster, well, having COVID, that's not just a thing, right? If you had a pretty serious case, then you know, you're in a different category than the rest of us and most people who had mild breakthroughs or mild cases beforehand. That is a wonderful example of the detail, the nuance in your work and others' work and how that nuance is often completely and utterly lost once it gets translated for public consumption. And this is something that I have dealt with and Chris has dealt with, every scientist has dealt with, is that the moment you publish something, you often lose control of the message and how to get that message out there. And so... This makes me even more excited to have this podcast put out there uh, because I was just telling Chris, it was either yesterday or or late last week that I heard there's now the first documented case of reinfection of Omicron. So Mm -hmm. somebody who got the Omicron variant recovered and then all of a sudden contracted it again. And so I think that person individual was a mild case. And so this is a really wonderful example of exactly what's going on. So one, thank you. And two, (laughs) we all need to do a better job of trying to tailor our message to the public, but it's always so difficult when these new studies come out. And to the public, it seems like the message keeps on changing and people don't like change. (laughs) They like the message to stay the same. And I think also, I think in my experience, you have a certain degree of control with the first message, right? You can write a press Mm -hmm. release or you can push out on your Twitter feed or other channels what you want people to learn from your study. But then there's the coverage and then there's the coverage of the coverage. And then there's maybe people who have a certain agenda using your work to support some cause or go against some cause. And that, you know, you have no control over. And it becomes exhausting to fight back against it. Uh, You know, having your various social media wars on Twitter of people trying to misuse your work to prove a, a certain point. That's a job in and of itself. And for academics, that's a job that is not recognized or rewarded in any way, shape or form, despite how important it actually can be. Yeah, I agree. I, I see, though, I think you guys are good examples, and a lot of my younger students and junior colleagues, I see them embracing social media in a more sophisticated way than I ever could or did, and it's important. And I really, I do feel like we can and should value that and reward that within the academy and in other ways as well. You know, if we do work that we think matters and we want it to matter, that's how it's going to matter. It is a topic near and dear to Kira and I's hearts because we we do this every week. But what needs to happen is we need to train our students to do this part as well as the other part from the beginning because the messaging and how it gets used doesn't seem especially relevant when they think anthropology is a backwater that nobody studies. But suddenly when it's front and center and it's life and death, it's like, oh, yeah, well, like, you know, we can't just wait till now to do the messaging. It's got to be all the time. And we've always been relevant. The CDC recently admitted that they should have included more social scientists on the front end of messaging and research, and they did not. One can only hope they learned their lesson, maybe. So, Tom, uh, the other paper that you referenced at the end is comparison of immunoglobulin G and neutralizing antibody responses after one or two doses of COVID-19 mRNA vaccine in previously infected and uninfected individuals. And you essentially gave us a take home, but I wonder if you could speak to some of the mechanisms. I have one question. One, like what's the role of IgG there? And two, I wonder if you can tell us how you developed a way to do this at-home COVID test, which just sounds like magic to those of us who don't work in labs. I was wondering if you could unpack those two things a little bit for us. So maybe I'll start with the second one and come back to the first. 
Yeah, it's magic. Yeah, that's just what we do with magic in the lab. You know, just just like this. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. That was a surreal time. I mean, do you ever do you ever pause and just, you know, this thing has been so gradual and we've had our ups and downs over the past two years, but have you ever tried to get yourself back in that headspace of April 2020? I mean, I can't speak for you, but in my experience, you know, we were locked in our house and we were not supposed to leave and we would go for walks, but we kind of felt like we shouldn't. And if someone happened to cough within the same block that I was on, I would freak out. You know, we were just trying to figure out how to get food. And we live in a city and, you know, once we figure out how to get our basic needs met, we, we knew we'd be okay. But then coming on a campus was a whole other thing. It was like a ghost town. It was, it was very surreal. And, you know, my lab, as I mentioned before, is not very sophisticated. There's no security system and there's no, like, you know, fancy doors. And it's just the key, door of the key, which I have. And the main obstacle to getting that protocol, that method up and running was access to supplies. And there was no supply chain, right? Nothing was happening. But some colleagues at the medical school were developing an IgG, an antibody test for COVID for clinical purposes with serum, you know, typical venous blood draw. And I found out about them through a mutual colleague and I wrote them an email saying, this is who I am, this is what I do. And, you know, I collect blood and drops of blood on this paper that allows me to collect it anywhere. And I think we could use this as a tool for getting blood from people in their home safely. And then we can test and do a serological study in Chicago. And to their credit, you know, I've had a range of reactions from medical types when I have that conversation with them. To their credit, like, wow, that's great. Yes, here's a problem that can be solved with this. And so we became collaborators in this effort instantly. And the key issue there for me was that they had the antigen. They had the piece of the virus inactivated, you know, safe, but the piece of the virus that I needed to put on my assay plates to capture the antibody that was in the blood sample. And they just gave it to me. And I figured out how to do it. We validated it together. They drew, drew some plasma samples that matched blood spots and we validated the paper together and, and it was great. So that made it possible. And I've developed 10 different blood spot immunoassays over my career. So that part I knew how to do. That, that part was not magic. And so we did it and then we launched the study and then at the end of it, getting back to where you started this question, we had blood samples from nearly 10,000 people across the Chicagoland area. About 700 of them tested positive for prior exposure at some point to SARS. And among those who tested positive, there was a whole range of IgG levels and symptom reports. So, you know, when I said earlier that about 40% of people have asymptomatic infections, that's based on our study. 40% of the people were surprised when we wrote back to them and said, oh, by the way, you test positive for prior exposure to SARS-CoV-2. And they're like, what? I mean, they reported no symptoms, right? And then there are lots of people who said, oh yeah, I, that makes sense. I felt crappy for a couple weeks. It must've been COVID. Great. Of course, they couldn't get a test. They couldn't get a nasal test and a PCR test because those like you just couldn't get those in the first three, four months of the pandemic. And then there's a category of people who went to the doctor or called their doctor or got a PCR test and the doctor said, you have COVID or you likely have COVID. We can't test you for sure, but almost certainly you have it because that's just what's going on right now. And then we tested their antibodies and they're super high. So then we followed those people up when they get vaccinated and we measured their antibody response to the vaccine, and then also the durability, you know, over time, how long their antibodies last and how high they are. And we also developed the second test called a neutralizing antibody test, where we just measure your blood sample's ability to interfere with a virus 
in interaction with the ACE2 receptor, which is how the virus binds to our cells and generates the process of an infection. So we have a blood spot method for that too, which we developed several months later. And as it turns out, there are sort of three groups of people. There are the people who had confirmed cases of COVID and felt really crappy, high levels of symptoms. They have high levels of response to the vaccine and long duration of immunity. And then there are lots of people who were exposed to test positive, and many of those people maybe tested themselves with a rapid test or got a test and they had a confirmed case of COVID, but it was mild. And then there are people who had no exposure, no history exposure, serologically, no knowledge of being exposed. And those two groups of people, the mild, moderate cases and unexposed, generate the same pattern of antibody response to vaccination, same profile of decline over time, and pretty similar risk to reinfection or breakthrough infection. So that, I think, is one of our big takeaways from our study, and it comes from a more population and community-based orientation. Like that middle group of people, you know, the people who didn't engage in that clinical infrastructure, they are not being studied in the pandemic. It's the hospitalized and the severe cases, and then like the uninfected. But that group in between, which sort of count as a case in the sense that they were exposed and their immune system saw this virus, they look pretty different than the people who had the serious full-blown cases. And they don't look that different from people who were never that exposed. This is fascinating and in exceedingly relevant work. And I'm pretty sure Chris and I could probably talk to you for the next three or four hours if we didn't both have commitments like right now. So to wrap up, one, amazing and thank you. And two, we always like to hear what you do for fun other than developing antibody antigen tests and the amazing quote-unquote magic that you perform yeah. in your lab. Uh, what are your sorts of hobbies? You know, I've been so fortunate just in my career to have tons of support, but I also really believe in having fun and like work-life balance. And that's something I talk to my postdocs and my graduate students and even my undergraduates um, about a lot. It's really important. And I think if anything in my mind, I think in many people's minds has sort of crystallize a bit with the pandemic is like, it's really important <laughs> to take time to take care of yourself and to have fun. So I appreciate the question. I love getting outdoors. Mountain biking is something that I've sort of re-engaged as a result of the pandemic. I bought myself an old bike on Craigslist and I've been fixing it up a bit and trying to get out there. The winter has slowed me down a little bit, but I also love to ski and fly fish, which are also not great you know, Midwest hobbies, especially at this time of year. But the thing that I can do year round, which I'm doing right now a lot of, is um, I've taken up woodworking as a hobby over the past 10 or so years. I have a shop in the basement when Rebecca, my wife and I moved up to Evanston from the city condo, did that urban kind of thing. We moved up, I was like, okay, I'm willing to move up to Evanston and get a house, but I need to take over part of the basement for a woodworking shop. Are you okay with that? And uh, she said, yes. How are so, you venting sawdust? I um, have a filter system and then just sort of a shop vac that I filter through a bucket that captures the big chunks. It's not great, but I have windows on either side of the shop, which isn't very big. It's like, you know, 20 feet wide and I can open one window and put an exhaust fan in the other and that pulls a lot. Yeah. I have the same shop vac on a bucket and a box fan bungee corded into a window. So yeah, yeah. That's so a similar, similar uh, <laughs> approach here. Well, really quick, what are you working on? I've been doing picture frames lately. Yeah, so I've done a bunch of those, but not lately. Right now I'm working on like a butcher block countertop. Oh, yes. So. That's the most valuable asset that I have made. Chris and I are both cooks and, yeah. and bakers. And so when you say that, like, ooh. Yeah. We're like sort of hobbyists in that. It's like almost like a like a sport in our house. And we're running out of counter space. So we found this area where we could put more counter space. And I said to Rebecca, it's like, oh, I can build us a, a, you know, a cherry countertop for that. Yep. Like, All right. So that's what I'm on. Yep. 
I applaud it. I thank you, Tom. This is all amazing. Tom, thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful interview. You guys Take care. Thank you. Bye. Take care.